The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Dive right back into where we left off several weeks ago. A couple of months ago, we were walking verse by verse through the book of Exodus, and we'll pick back up today. Uh, it's good to see Donald and Collier uh, back there with us today. And uh, just wanted to point them out. Um, looked up and saw Donald in front of me. Didn't know they were going to be here. Guys, it is great to see you back. Uh, we're, we're thankful that you're here. Uh, let me just, uh, just kind of catch us up with where we were. A couple of months ago, we were walking through first six chapters of Exodus, and we saw God largely calling Moses out, uh, calling him to a special task, to the job of, of leading the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. And uh, he spent most of that first six chapters sort of convincing Moses that, uh, that, that he was the man for this job, displaying his glory to Moses, preparing and training Moses. And up till now, that's been basically what we've looked at. Uh, but now we're about to embark on God turning his attention away from Moses and turning it to Pharaoh and to Egypt. God is about to unleash fury on Pharaoh and Egypt uh, and, and he's going to deliver his people. From the beginning, God has displayed that while he would use Moses, a fallen, argumentative, stubborn, sinful man like Moses to, to bring it about, that God alone would be the one that would get the glory for bringing Israel out of Egypt. And, and we're going to continue to see this today. It is fitting that yesterday, um, a horse by the name of American Pharaoh uh, after 37 years, broke the drought and won the triple crown. As we turn our gaze back to Pharaoh, it was in God's providence that a horse named American Pharaoh won yesterday. And at this point, you say, did, did God pull that off? I don't know. I didn't have any money on it or anything like that. Don't go out of here saying that. But, uh, but I, I, think, I think it's just fitting. It sets itself up for a great illustration this morning because at this point, American Pharaoh is the king of all horses, at this point in history. Uh, my, my daughter's over here shaking her head because there's only one horse that has ever been the king of all horses, and it is Secretariat, uh, right? And, uh, but, and as of right now, American Pharaoh is it. American Pharaoh is sovereign all, over all other horses. But this time next year, American Pharaoh won't be on the scene. This time next year, there will be another horse that will come along. Just like last year, it was California Chrome, and the year before that, I don't remember, and neither do you. Because horses come and go like athletes and leaders, and, and in any arena in human history, there will be those that will rise to fame and power, but they will fall away, but only our God stands forever. And that's the point, really, today. I've titled this sermon, Main Event. Main event because there is a main event that happens with all of us. And the main event is whether we will come up against the sovereignty of God and we will say, he is supreme, not me. Or whether we will, in our pride, join forces with Satan and fight against that sovereignty only to find ourselves in a losing battle. So let's look at our text this morning as we dive into Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. 
The Bible says here, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. I want to point out to you just some things in this text today. Uh, there will be some main points along the way, but largely I want to walk through and talk about this text. First thing I want to show you today is that God shares his throne with no one. God shares his throne with no one. As you listen to verses 8, 9, and 10, who initiates that confrontation? Is it not God? This is not Pharaoh coming to God and saying, let me throw down with you, God. This is God initiating this confrontation. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says this, you are to do this. I want you to notice that God is the one who's taking the fight to Pharaoh. Not only that, but the peculiar instructions that Moses and Aaron are given to to follow. There are three things here that just, if we don't know the context, we don't know what's going on. What's the deal with the staff? And what's the deal with throwing it down at the feet of Pharaoh and it becomes a serpent? What's, what's the deal with that? Well, let me just show you some things here. The staff. In ancient Palestine, in ancient Palestinian Israelite culture, a man's staff was an incredibly important personal possession. It was a means of protection It was a means of identification. They would often take and carve on their staff various markings that would identify that staff as theirs, as it belonged to them. In in, in the days before photo identification, a man's staff really was how he ID'd himself. It was, the staff was even a symbol of one's power. You could look at some and, and it was obvious that that belonged to a more powerful man than another. This staff was incredibly important in that day. For Moses and Aaron, when they carried this staff or this rod, they, were, they knew in their minds, after God had displayed himself to them, that they were not carrying their own staff, that it didn't represent them, but more than them, it represented God. That it was God's staff, that he was the one who would perform these miracles, not them. For Pharaoh and Egypt, they would soon come to learn the same thing. They would watch Moses and Aaron. We'll see this as we walk through the plagues. God will take this staff, and it will become obvious that it, it is distinct and separate from Moses and Aaron, and that God is the one who is doing all the things that he will do. This was not a fight between Moses and Pharaoh. God himself was bringing the fight. Well, what's the deal with throwing it down? Well, in Egyptian culture, this was a way to, de- to demonstrate sovereignty over some particular item. There, it's an, 
there are stories in Egyptian history of sorcerers and magicians who, um, one in particular, who, who made a uh, sort of paper mache, if you will, uh, crocodile, and he took it to the Nile and he threw it into the Nile, and supposedly the legend, the story goes, it became a living crocodile. That he displayed sovereignty over the material by casting it down. So God is bringing this staff, a symbol of God's power, and he's casting it down over Pharaoh, displaying sovereignty over Pharaoh himself. Well, you say, why in the world did he turn it into a snake? I mean, of all things, anything but a snake. I walked into the sound booth earlier to get my mic, and I I, I looked down at David, and I said, David, what in the world are you looking at? He had his phone out, and he was looking at, at a snake. I said, are you looking at a snake? He said, I don't want to be. And I guess somebody had sent it to him. And uh, he was back there, and I said, well, that's pretty fitting for today's text. And, uh, but if anything, can't create it, make it anything other than a snake. Why a snake? Well, the Egyptian people were incredibly afraid, fearful of snakes. In that land, it was very common for them to be bitten and for them to die from snake bite. The Egyptian people would wear special amulets around their neck and they would say certain things and take special precaution to, to ward off snake bite. It, this is probably the reason that Pharaoh decided to take the snake as the symbol of his power. If you look at all of the, the headdresses in Egyptian history, that female cobra is there prominent at the top. Pharaoh probably looked at the fear that his people had of snakes and thought, Nothing will strike fear into their hearts like the snake itself. And he took it as his own symbol of power. Despite their fear of snakes, though, the people of Egypt began to worship them. It was more than just a symbol for Pharaoh, but they began to revere the snake so much that they built temples to the snake and to the snake goddess named Wajet. They built this, this temple, and they believed, the pharaohs actually believed that this snake goddess was the one who uh, gave them the throne of Egypt and gave them some of her own divine powers. You say, well, what's the point in all this? Why does God tell Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says this to you, prove yourselves, you're to take this staff and you're to throw it down at, at Pharaoh's feet, and it's going to become this snake? Well, if you look at it and you step back from it, what God is doing is God is saying, Pharaoh, you have claimed for yourself sovereignty, and I'm coming into your very throne room, and I'm going to throw down my authority over you. The very thing that you think symbolizes you well, I'm going to make crawl in the dust. God is directly attacking Pharaoh and his self-claimed sovereignty. He is directly attacking the Egyptians at the heart of what they believe and value and fear and worship. God wants them to know that he alone deserves to be on the throne. R. Kent Hughes said he was taking the symbol of the king's majesty and making it crawl in the dust. Here are a couple of points of application for us just in that one point alone. God shares his throne with no one. A couple of points of application are this. We live in a day of pharaohs, if you will. Self-proclaimed sovereigns 
Christians are increasingly being targeted as societal terrorists. We, we live in a culture that, that preaches inclusivism and tolerance, but that same culture includes and tolerates everyone and everything except followers of Jesus who believe the Bible. Biblical conviction is now labeled as hate speech. We live in a day of self-proclaimed sovereigns, and sometimes it's easy for us to look around at the culture and see all that's going on and all that is slipping away. We sing that old hymn, Blessed Assurance, and it takes me back to the days of sitting over in that side room in our sanctuary with my family, my grandfather, my mom, my dad, my siblings, all my friends, all the people that grew up pouring into my life. It takes me back there, and I look at that day, and I look at this day, and it's easy for us to sit and say, we're losing. And it's not too far from there to draw the conclusion that if we're losing, then God's losing. Because of this, when we look around at the culture, a lot of people picture God as either too cowardly to fight back you look at what's going on in the world and they say, if your God's really all that you say he is, then why won't he do something? Maybe he's hiding in fear. And some people say, well, he's too weak to do anything. He doesn't have the ability to do anything about what's going on. He's no God at all. Or maybe some just draw the conclusion, they look around at the culture and all the injustice that happens and they say, he doesn't care. He may be God, but he doesn't care. He's the God of deism who winds this thing up and lets it just run its course. And church, hear me on this. Let the image of God sending Moses and Aaron into the very throne room of Pharaoh to take the staff of God and cast it at the feet of Pharaoh, turning it into a snake. Let that image declare to you that our God is not too weak, that he does indeed care, that he will share his throne with no one. He takes the fight there. He tolerates no rivals. The Lord is Listen to Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. The Lord is jealous. He's an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Church, 
We may live in a time of darkness, but by no means think that God is unable to or uncaring about what we're facing. God will one day right every wrong. He will be the God who carries out justice. Second point of application for us out of this, though, is that sometimes it's not a culture of self-proclaimed sovereigns that we must worry about. Sometimes the self-proclaimed sovereign is us, probably more than the other. We stand in the face of God and we shake our fist, maybe not literally, but we stand and we shake our fist to God and we say, you can't tell me what to do. I won't submit to your authority. I won't go there. I won't do that. We make videos to beg you to step out of the seats and come and volunteer to work with children. We plead with you, go to Kentucky on mission. And I'm not saying that, that for in every case there is this Rebellion against the authority of God. But I am saying that for some of us, we care more about the trappings of life and putting ourselves on the throne of pleasure than we do about laying our lives down to the service of the only one who deserves to be on the throne. Do you hear me? I say this in love. But we should not have to beg. Those who've come to know the gospel, not just as a head thing, but as a changed heart. Not perfectly, but we live lives that are submitted to the sovereignty of our God. God will not tolerate you as a rival any more than he will Pharaoh. As we will read, he will destroy Pharaoh. He will destroy the army of Egypt when the waves of that Red Sea come crashing down on them. And what makes you think that in your sin and in your rebellion, he will tolerate you anymore? The Bible teaches that God, in his justice, will punish all all sinners with death and hell. But the Bible also teaches that God in his mercy sent Jesus. That God, when we were enemies of his, displayed his love for us in sending Jesus to live a perfect life, a perfectly righteous and obedient life, and then go to a cross that he did not deserve to die in our place. If there's an argument for the justice of God, I can't find a better one than that. You say, well, then how do I avoid this wrath, this destruction that's coming for me in my rebellion? The only way, the only way, the exclusive and only way, as politically incorrect as it may be, is to repent, to turn, of your, to turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone. There is no other way to God than through him. Second point I'll give you today out of this passage is this. 
Not only will God tolerate no rivals, but we see God's power when we obey his commands. We see God's power when we obey his commands. In other words, when God is on the throne, we experience his power. See, the culture wants to tell us the opposite of that. That if you want real power, then you got to get up there and be the boss of your life and take it. But the reality is, the Bible teaches that if we want to experience the greatness of God, we will die to ourselves. And this is what we see here. I mean, obviously, this is not an exclusive statement. We see God's power all, all around us all the time. Even those who are not submitted to God see God's power. I spent this last week sitting on the beach staring at the ocean. Now watch those waves crash over and over and over again. I heard the waves make sounds like cannons. I watched the tide every day like clockwork work its way out and work its way in. We see God's power all around us all the time, whether we submit to it or not. But for those who submit to God and step out in obedience and trust him to follow him, there's a level of, there's, there's a depth to knowing the power of God that is beyond anything else. I could go to Google right now and I could tell you the elevation of Mount Everest and I could tell you what I would need in, a, in, an, ex, in, in, in an expedition to climb that thing. I could tell you all the facts and figures about it. But... I can't tell you what it's like to climb it. If I talk about it and spout out off the, all those facts, but then a guy walks up and he pulls his hand out of his pocket and he's missing three fingers on his hand that he lost a frostbite as he climbed it. He knows the power of Everest in a way that I don't know it. In the same way, when you and I step out in submission and obedience to the commands of God, we know his power. That's what happened with Moses and Aaron. They found out, number one, God's omniscient. And God told them, here's what Pharaoh's going to say before Pharaoh said it. Told them, here's what you're going to do before they did it. God's omniscient. He knows all things. How would they know that, though, unless they obeyed and went? I suppose there was probably a little bit of Moses and Aaron that went thinking, are we really going to have to cast this thing down? Is this thing really going to become a serpent in front of Pharaoh? And as this thing, I imagine they're standing there, and as Pharaoh opens his mouth and says, prove yourselves, I just kind of, Picture Aaron sort of elbowing Moses. God knew. Do you know what good news it is that God is omniscient? God never grows in knowledge. God never finds out anything. God never forgets anything. I remember I was was good in high school in geometry. Not in algebra, but in geometry, I was good. My son just finished up geometry. He would come to me with questions of homework at night. I had no clue. All I remember of geometry was that protractor and finding the points and drawing angles. He would come to me with questions. I would think, I don't think they did this in geometry when I was in high school. God never forgets or learns anything. Nothing ever surprises God. 
God knows all. Moses and Aaron learned that not only is he omniscient, but he's all-powerful. He turned a stick into a snake. Can you do that? The reality is, you and I have never made anything. We've rearranged a lot of stuff, but we've never made anything. Whether it's construction paper and pipe cleaners, or whether it's wallpaper, or whether it's your own children, you've never made anything. You've rearranged the dust that he created. The Bible teaches that he made out of nothing. That he spoke and stars were there. That the ocean was there. That land was there. That stuff that washed up on the beach this week that I saw in the sand was there. At the command of his word. How would Moses and Aaron know this unless they went? You and I will know God when we obey God. I'm skipping a lot of my notes here and skipping ahead. The third point is this. We align ourselves with Satan when we attempt to put ourselves on the throne. We align ourselves with Satan when we try to sit on God's throne. This is what we see in verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. This is here implying that these magicians of Egypt were operating not in their own power. This was not magic trick. This was not sleight of hand. This was, they were operating by secret arts. They were tapped into the power of Satan. How do you know if um, if Pharaoh here, he he aligns himself as he tries to sit on his own throne, tries to proclaim himself sovereign over himself and the world? It's a quick step that he aligns himself with Satan because that's what Satan did when he rebelled against God. He looked at the throne and the worship of God and said, I deserve that. And God expelled him from heaven. Well, how do you know if you are trying to sit on God's throne in your life? Well, a couple of things I would point out to you. I would just ask you to ask yourself, what makes you angry? What do you get angry about? I mean, what, what, what floors you? Do you get angry over unrighteousness and injustice in the world or Do you get angry over unmet expectations? The traffic's slower than you thought it would be. It rains at the beach while you're there. Do you get angry over those things? You go to Dunkin' Donuts one morning and you want a latte and you come back and they put the milk and the flavor in, but they forgot the espresso. All those things happened to me this week. (laughs) What makes you angry? What makes you passionate? I mean, what drives you? What do you give your time and your money to? Are you spending more time making yourself look good than him? We align ourselves with Satan when we try to sit on God's throne. Fourth, Satan can only imitate God's sovereignty. 
Satan can only imitate God's sovereignty. In verse 12, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. So what in the world is God doing? God is displaying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you may have your tricks of your own. This is the very symbol of your own power, but my power is greater than yours. And Satan can only imitate God's sovereignty. Some have have tried to explain what's going on here away. They've looked at these magicians pulled out, and they've tried to to explain away this power. This is not not real power. This was sleight of hand and, and, and magic tricks or illusions. But I would say to you that Satan has real power. Why would we want to diminish the power that's there? The Bible teaches that Satan has power, that he, that he was able to transport Jesus in the wilderness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one, or the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. There have been those that have tried to explain this away. And these magicians took these sticks and made them snakes. That These were not really sticks at all. They were snakes, and they had performed what's known as catalepsy. And they sort of pinched the neck of this snake in such a way that it sort of temporarily paralyzed the snake and caused it to become stiff and rigid. And then when they threw it to the ground with a jolt, it jolted that snake out of catalepsy, and it became a snake again. See, we, we do a disservice when we look at Satan and we say he has no real power at all, but then we struggle with it in our lives every day. Satan has real power. But here's what I want you to see. Satan only performs counterfeit miracles. A counterfeit miracle is a, a real miracle. It's real power that it's, that's pointing in the wrong direction. If you look through the Bible, every miracle that was ever done was made to point to God. It was done to cause others to see God and His greatness and to see Jesus for who He really was. Satan performs these powerful events to point in different directions. They point away from God. They point anywhere but Him. I want you to notice that the magicians don't get creative. They only copy what Moses did. And this will become evident as we walk through the plagues later on. The, the most sensical, sensical, sensible, <laughs> is sensical a word? It is now, right? Okay, it's forever on the podcast. The most sensible thing for the magicians to do would be to reverse the curse as we walk through, to reverse the plague. But they never reverse the plague. They just copy it. In essence, they're just making things worse. He doesn't have the power to reverse what God does. He doesn't, it's not yin and yang. It's not dark versus light. As if they are equal forces battling each other out. He's just trying to distract. Satan is always trying to counterfeit the work of God. The book of Galatians points out he has a counterfeit gospel. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Satan comes to the church of God and begins to preach a different counterfeit gospel. Satan has counterfeit ministers. 
who attempt to infiltrate the church and lead people astray. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You'll see it there. This is shown to be a counterfeit miracle by one thing. In this passage today, the snake that Moses and Aaron cast down turns to the snakes of those magicians and swallows them whole. It's interesting that uh, this word swallow is the same word that we'll see later on in chapter 15, verse 12, when it describes the Egyptian army in the midst of that Red Sea, and it says that the Red Sea swallows them. God is here telling Pharaoh in advance what he's going to do. Despite all of this, Satan has real power. These are miracles that that point in the wrong direction. I want you to hear me say this. You will only know real power when God is on the throne of your life, when you're obeying him, when you're stepping out and trusting him and walking where he's told you to walk. But this false, these false miracles, this real power but that's displayed to distract you from God, it may be real power, but it is not absolute power. It does not have the final word in your life. Despite all of this, and this is the last point I would have you to see today, despite all of this, Pharaoh still doesn't believe. He still will not believe. Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Here's Pharaoh standing up to Moses and Aaron, who are there not on their behalf, but representing God himself. And he stands in the face of God and says, I will not let the people go. He shakes his fist at God and and says, you're not sovereign, I am. And he claims to be sovereign, and in, in doing so, he displays that he is nothing more than God's puppet. That Pharaoh's heart is hardened as the Lord said it would be. I'm reminded here of of a verse in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Make no mistake about it. God, in his mercy, will in some cases look at those who have proclaimed themselves to be sovereign, and he will, in his mercy, give them new hearts and allow them to hear the gospel and turn from their rebellion and trust him, and he will be gracious and merciful in doing so. But he will also, in his justice, harden the hearts of some so that they will become vessels of dishonor. And in so doing, he will also glorify himself. Well, here's the application for us. Church, we don't have to worry about whether the church will survive the culture war. God alone is sovereign. Despite what anyone else says or despite how loudly they say it, God is God. God will ultimately destroy anyone and anything that sets itself against his throne. It doesn't bring us joy. In some ways, it does in the fact that there will finally be justice and we should celebrate justice. But does it bring us joy to know that there will, there will be some who will never come to believe and they will be destroyed in their sin? No. 
just as it brings God no joy. He's not willing that any should perish. Two is this. We must not capitulate to or yield to the self-claimed sovereigns of our world. In the days to come, church, it will become more and more and more politically incorrect to believe the Bible. Just by saying that you are a follower of Jesus, you are saying that in their eyes that you are a bigot, that you're hateful, and they will condemn you for it. But even so, we must not yield to those self-proclaimed sovereigns of our day. And number three, we must not shrink back from telling the gospel. We cannot shrink back from declaring God's sovereignty and extending his grace in the gospel. We, we can't walk away from that. We can't, just because the culture gets loud about the fact that God's not sovereign, how dare you say Jesus is the only way? We cannot shrink back from what the Bible claims that God is. We must do so, though, in ways that are seasoned with grace, that always there is the extension of the gospel, that if anyone would, would repent of sin and turn and believe that Jesus would forgive them of their sins and bring them to God. I want you to remember that it's only when Moses and Aaron stepped out in obedience and obeyed God that they experienced his power. Church, I pray that in the days to come, when the heat is turned up and we face more and more persecution, that we in that day would find his power is sufficient. God shares his throne with no one. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. We thank you that today there's nothing that surprises you or takes you off guard. There's nothing that you can't orchestrate. There's no grain of sand anywhere on the planet. Whether it's in the back seat of my car or it's still on the shore. There's not a grain of sand anywhere that you don't control. That you can't call at any moment to accomplish your will. God, I pray that you would work in us, Lord, to destroy the idolatry and the pride that fills us and leads us to rebellion. And God, I pray that you would then, Lord, send us and use us to boldly declare your sovereignty and to extend your grace in the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to just think about what's been said. Pretty heavy stuff today, talking about the sovereignty of God. I want to give you an opportunity to just ask yourself, am I on the throne of God? Am I trying to sit in His place? I want you to come to grips and wrestle with the fact that you won't stand there. You won't last. You don't compare. And maybe today, in wrestling with that, as you contemplate that, maybe 
Today is the day where you finally turn, step off the throne of your life and yield to the only one who deserves to be there. As you contemplate whatever God leads you to, I'm going to be seated down here on the front row. Love to have you come speak with me if I can help you. We have people that are more than willing to pray for you. We have people in a prayer room that's out these doors that would love to just listen to you and then then help you carry that burden to God. Whatever the case may be, we ask that you would not harden your heart today, but listen to the warning of God and heed it. We're also going to, um, to celebrate today the Lord's Supper in this time. We intend this today to be a remembering of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in our place as we take the bread and the, and the juice. It symbolizes his body and his blood. And this is primarily for our members here at Abner Creek. But let me say this, if you're here today and you're from another church, you're visiting with us and you're in good standing with that church, then by all means, come and take communion. Don't come and take this lightly, but take communion. Take the Lord's Supper and remember what he's done and declare that he's one day coming again. The only thing we ask is that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not believing you're not trusting the Lord Jesus, then then just let this go by. Don't take this table. Don't come and, and eat the bread or the juice today because it's not something that you really believe. We don't believe that this actually is the body and the blood of Jesus. We believe it symbolizes it, but it symbolizes a real act that Jesus took on our behalf. And if you don't believe that, then let it go. But church, if you're here today as a believer, trusting the finished work of Christ alone to forgive you of your sin and to hold you until the day that he comes again and one day to glorify you and make you fit to live with him forever, then by all means, come and take today. You can line up in these aisles and you can come on either side of the table. Just don't treat this in a trivial way. Don't stand and discuss the triple crown or what you're doing for lunch or any of those things. Let's worship our God as we remember his sacrifice on our behalf. You come as God leads. teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.